Today we're going to talk about women's health, and especially health as women age. With the oldest population in the country and a host of risk factors that are sometimes out of our control, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and in particular women in our community, need to be armed with the right information to be as healthy as they can. Well, my guest today is the perfect person to talk to about this. Dr. Vivian Brown is a family physician in Toronto and a well-known international speaker. She's the author of A Woman's Guide to Healthy Aging, Seven Essential Ways to Keep You Vital, Happy, and Strong. Dr. Brown's resume is extensive. She's active in numerous organizations and is the Vice President of North America for the Medical Women International Association, the past president of the Federation of Medical Women of Canada, the former chair of the Consumer Education Committee for North American Menopause Society, and a board member of the Women's Brain Health Initiative. I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Brown before, and I know she has lots of great information. I think you're going to enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brown. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so we are going to talk all about women's health today and healthy aging, but how did you become an expert in this area in particular? Um, You know, as a family doctor, uh, and certainly when I started in practice, the bulk of my practice were women patients. And I think partly because of that, and partly as medicine has evolved in the last 20 to 30 years, we realize that women's health and men's health are not the same thing. And so it intrigued me to understand some of the differences and to work with the patients that I was taking care of. So what are some big things that change in in women's health as they get older? I think, Mike, something that changes for all of us, men and women, is that our body ages and the things that control aging to a certain extent are the caps on the ends of chromosomes. And those caps are called telomeres. And the enzyme that keeps those caps healthy, so that keeps our chromosomes healthy, is called telomerase. And what we're learning is that if our telomeres and telomerase are being used up too quickly or aging too quickly, we as an individual age as well. And so when we're looking at some of the things that affect telomeres, different things affect telomeres differently in men and in women. For example, when we look at hormones in women, we can talk about that, but we know that it has an effect on aging. And so it's very interesting that we face different challenges, that we have different expectations, and that we really need to personalize the medicine to the person that we're seeing, in this case, to women. And I think that's really just an interesting area of medicine. That's right. Yeah, I've heard that the chromosomes get shorter and shorter and shorter over time, and then they get a little bit weaker. They don't do the same job they used to do. Is that correct? Exactly. That's why when we age, we start to need glasses or we start to need a hearing aid. And the other cells in our body age as well, including the cells of our immune system, The term for that is called immunosenescence. And in the book, I talk about why it's important to be vaccinated as we get older because our immune system is not as robust as when we were younger. Ah, That makes perfect sense. Okay, so for men and women, we age differently. What are some of the challenges that women face that are distinct from men? Well, on the one hand, women live longer, but women are less financially secure than men often are less involved with their health because they've spent a good portion of their life taking care of children or taking care of older parents. So when women age, they often are not in a great position to take care of themselves because they don't have the experience to do that. 
Uh, and, you know, when we see even with diseases like COVID, there's a different response in men and women. Some of that's good. Some of that's not so good. Right. And you wrote a book on this topic, and you, you really highlight seven key areas that uh, women should really pay attention to for their health. What are those areas? Well, I picked seven areas where what you do can have an impact. So in, in this case, I did not talk about different cancers, and the focus was not just on gynecology, although clearly that's very different, and, and sexual health is very different in men and women. What I focused on was diet and nutrition, exercise and sleep, which often go hand in hand, some of the issues around bone health, brain health, cardiac health, osteoporosis or bone disease, as well as immunization and, of course, menopause. Okay. Well, that's some good topics. I think these are all perfectly in line with what we're trying to accomplish with the show. You know, ultimately, we want people to be able to listen and be able to pull some things away. And the more they hear from different angles, uh, the better it is. So for me, obviously, something I've taken a keen interest to in my research and, and, and in my own work has been diet nutrition. So what are some key things that women should pay attention to in their diets? So this is a really interesting area. And I think it's important for both men and women that as we age, it's common to gain weight, but it's not inevitable. And what we really are doing is fighting a little bit against our genetics and against history because, you know, uh, heavier weight was a protection for cavemen when there was uh, scarce food. But in general, I think it's really important that we maintain a reasonable weight for our height. Because when we look at death rates, when we look at different cancers, when we look at various diseases, being very much overweight or very much underweight puts you at risk. And so I really encourage women to look at what they're eating, to look at portion size, and to consider one of the sort of most uh, reasonable diets in the last 10 years, which is the Mediterranean diet. Lots of fruits and vegetables some healthy olive oil, smaller amounts of protein than what we're used to. So fish and chicken, not so much red meat, not so much sweets. And it's basically a pyramid based on the kinds of foods they eat in Italy, Spain, and France. And uh, France in particular, people do better on this kind of diet than we do on a North American diet. We see less heart disease, even though they're eating things like brie cheese, but they're right. eating tiny amounts compared to what we eat. Yeah, exactly. Portion sizes and real food. That's really a big characteristic and good fats and lots of fish. And I, I, the rule we always say with proteins is the less legs it has, the better. So we tend to eat a lot of four-legged proteins here. <laughs> so what is the Mediterranean diet? Well, the Mediterranean diet is a way of eating based on the traditional foods of countries bordering the Mediterranean Sea. There's no concrete definition of the exact Mediterranean diet. Instead, it's typically characterized as being high in vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds, and olive oil. Interest in the Mediterranean diet began around the 1960s with the observation that coronary heart disease caused fewer deaths in Mediterranean countries like Greece and Italy than in North America and Northern European countries. It has since been the focus of many studies where it's been consistently found that this diet is associated with reduced risk factors for cardiovascular disease. The Mediterranean diet can be summed up like this. First, it encourages daily consumption of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and healthy fats, 
And by healthy fats, we mean things that are called poly and monounsaturated fats, like omega-3s and olive oil. Secondly, there's a weekly intake of fish, poultry, beans, and eggs is encouraged. There's also moderate portions of dairy products, and fourth, limited intake of red meat. Other important elements of the Mediterranean diet are sharing meals with family and friends, limiting not completely removing alcohol and being physically active. The two biggest concepts of the Mediterranean diet is that it leans to the side of being plant-based. Yes, you still consume some fish and poultry, but you're reducing red meat, which really differentiates it from traditional North American diets. It also has a strong emphasis on consuming healthy fats. So healthy fats are a mainstay of the Mediterranean diet. So it's not a low fat diet, but it does reduce saturated and trans fats, which contribute to heart disease. And they discourage these to be replaced with what are called essential fats. The main essential fat in the Mediterranean diet is olive oil. Olive oil provides monounsaturated fats, which is found to lower total cholesterol and low density lipoprotein, which is sometimes referred to as bad cholesterol. Another main source of healthy fat is fish. Fatty fish such as mackerel, herring, sardines, albacore tuna, salmon, lake trout, and like we have here, cod liver oil, which are all known to have lots of rich omega-3 fatty acids are extremely healthy for us. This is a type of polyunsaturated fat that may reduce inflammation in the body. These fish oils that contain these omega-3 fatty acids also help decrease triglycerides, reduce blood clotting, and decrease the risk of stroke and heart failure. Let's get back to the interview. I want to share a really interesting thing from, from Brazil. You know, uh, Brazil came out with a, with a food guide just the way Canada has a food guide. But one of the things they really emphasized was not so much what you eat, but how you eat. And the idea being less fast food, less food in the car, less food on the run, eating as a family, sitting at the table, no, no laptops, no TVs, no telephone, having that interaction with your family, eating slower, and then obviously making good choices. But I thought it was really interesting that they looked at how we eat, not just what we eat. I love that. And you know, the Canadian Food Guide has really made a big step change when it came to the way that it's designed now. And I knew, I know that they, they talk a lot about family time and dedicating time to meals. And we know that people digest better and they enjoy the food more. And, uh, and it just adds to the overall experience. So that's, that's nice to hear that as well. When it comes to exercise is the next thing on the list. That's a huge topic. What would be some things that people would want to keep in mind when they're starting to exercise or continuing to exercise? Well, I think what's really one of the most important things for women to think about is that generally hectic, which is what women feel. They're taking care of a lot of things. They're running up and down the stairs. They're doing the laundry. They're doing the housekeeping. Hectic is not the same as aerobic. And what we really need to do is we really need to increase our aerobic activity, which means getting your heart rate up, being a little bit short of breath, a little bit sweaty when you're doing exercise, and getting that aerobic fitness for 30 to 45 minutes, at least five to six days a week. I always let everybody take a day off. You know, things come up. But in general, we want to be more active on a daily basis. 
and not just running around, but actually doing work so that our heart rate gets up and is sustained at a higher level for 30 to 45 minutes a day. That's what's going to make a difference, and that's what Heart and Stroke tells us to do. Then the thing with that versus like doing errands and tasks and, and chores stuff like that, it's hard to progress through that because you aren't really sure exactly how much you're doing. So now you can work on the uh, on the higher intensity as you as you get going, which I think I think that's important for people to be able to see progress. That's half the motivation, is it not? Exactly. And you know, women tell me, "Oh, Dr. Brown, you know, you've been following for years. You've been telling me this for years, but I just don't have the time." What I translate that to mean is. It's not my priority. And what we know is if you yourself and your health, whether you're sleeping better, exercising better, eating better, if you yourself are not your priority, then quite clearly you're going to pay the price. And maybe you can't be the priority every day. Maybe you're sitting in a merge with, you know, your kid in a broken arm. Okay, that's not your, you're not the priority that day. But we need to be our own priority at least for the majority of time so that we can make these good decisions so that we will be around to help the people that we care about. Well, this, this is a great start. We're going to jump to a break. I'm here with Dr. Vivian Brown. We'll be right back. Before the break, Dr. Brown, we were talking about diet and exercise, but how important is sleep for people? Well, this is a really interesting area, Mike, and as you know, Sleep and sleep hygiene are becoming things that we now ask our patients about that we care about because sleep has such an impact on general health. We know, for example, that sleep has an impact on your mood, on your productivity, on your quality of life, on your physical health. And of course, with menopause, often women have changes in their sleep regulation, basically getting night sweats and waking up and having to change the sheets. And it's a real problem. I think everybody, I'd say the whole country, maybe even the whole world has been concerned about COVID and concerned and stressed. And we know that that affects sleep as well. And so sleep is one of those things that is something we're now measuring and looking at in terms of good health and is a predictor for good health. Is there ways for people to be able to measure their sleep or be able to track to see if they're getting any better at it? I think some of the, um, I'll say gadgets or some of the devices can track sleep, uh, but I actually don't use that very much myself. I occasionally Mm -hmm. refer people to a sleep clinic where they literally sleep at the clinic and things are measured in terms of their oxygenation and whether they have sleep apnea, but for the general population, for just the average person, I think if you can get into some good habits, um, Mm. in general, people will start to sleep better. And what we used to call good habits is now termed sleep hygiene. So for example, you never want to have a lot of light in the room where you're sleeping. And, And of course, this is a problem for people who are working shifts where they're trying to sleep in the day and working in the night. But basically, don't have the clock facing you, don't have your computer on in the room, don't have a lot of light in the room. You want the room to be dark on the cooler side so that you start to get ready to sleep even before you're going into bed. And sleep hygiene also refers to how much how stimulated you are before you go to sleep. We like to say that you're 
bed should be for sleeping or for sex. It shouldn't be for working on your laptop or making lists of the things you have to do or watching TV or all the things that are stimulating in our life so that we start to wind down because that winding down process is very important. Right. And then so that goes hand in hand with brain health. That's a huge part of your book. Um, one of the things I pulled out that I thought was really interesting is uh, there's some market differences in how men and women's brains work. For example, Columbia University found that uh, women are better at sensing emotional messages and picking up on body language, and they, they speak at a younger age. So as women yeah. age, how does their brain health change? Well, it's really interesting. You know, when we were hunters and gatherers, we knew that the hunter had to be able to find food. And so men, for example, have better vision when they're looking forward, where women have to sort of take care of the kids. And so women have better peripheral vision sort of to keep everybody in their, in their uh, eyesight, in their range. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a number of things that go along with that. You know, when men speak, for example, one area lights up in their brain. When women speak, multiple areas light up in their brain so that even while they're speaking, they're processing emotional cues and certain understandings. And so it's not that one sex is smarter than the other or can do things in a different way, but it's almost like we've been primed to be better at different things. In terms of women and speech, I I think that's just a really interesting area. When men get for early cognitive decline or the beginning of what we're worrying could turn into dementia. When men get tested, different test results at different levels suggest whether or not they're at risk. When women do the same test, they tend to do better. And that's actually a problem because a woman may feel like she's starting to lose certain abilities but when she tests, she tests at a range that's considered normal. And that's because women in general have better ability with words. And so what happens is they test better, even though they're already declining. So by the time women are recognized to have declined, they're at a much lower point than their male counterpart. So some of the researchers in Chicago, uh, this Dr. Pauline Mackey, who's quite brilliant, is doing research about how the testing has to be scored differently for men and women so that we pick up women at that same early stage that we, mm. at the same stage we pick up men because a lot of the drugs only work at a very early stage, which is why they don't work when women actually start to show evidence of early dementia because it means they're much farther down the path than you right. think they were. Yeah. And I know that you mentioned earlier that uh, you know there's a, there's obviously a change in estrogen and certain hormones during menopause. Um, how do some of these hormones impact our brain as well? Well, for example, cortisol is a hormone that is often up in older women, and the problem with that is it actually increases weight and it affects our stress parameters. So remember, we were talking about telomeres. Telomeres go down with age. And here we are more sensitive to stresses with higher levels of cortisol. So that kind of imbalance is something that has an impact on brain. Now, that's only one example. And unfortunately, medicine doesn't know all the areas that are impacted. 
but we do know that 70% of new cases of Alzheimer's dementia are women. Women mm. suffer more from depression, which we think has a chemical basis. Uh, women uh, suffer from uh, a number of diseases like MS, which also has to do with neurologic function. So although we're not sure of all the reasons why, we certainly know that stress and cortisol levels are higher in older women and need to be lower. So hence the importance of that sleep and exercise and all of those good habits to lower your stress levels. Okay, so another thing on lowering stress, then right in the same vein, uh, is, is meditation. Uh, you have a focus on that in, in, your, in your work as well. I do, and full disclosure, I think it's fair to say that I'm not very good at meditation personally. <laughs> I once asked one of the experts, and I said, you know, I'm not really good at meditation, but what about taking a hot bath and just relaxing? And his response to me was that if I was taking a bath, lowering the light, really relaxing for 15, 20 minutes, that's different than jumping in the bath going through your mind, all the things you have to do, getting washed and getting out of there. Mm -hmm. so, yes, meditation is important, and I think there's some good research on it. And if that works for you, great. And if that doesn't work for you, look to see what other ways of relaxation is really good for you. Because everybody's different. Not everything works yeah. for everyone. Well, some people can find, you know, relaxing to go for a walk, a hike, and get their exercise. And in Newfoundland, we're on the cliffs, and we can see beautiful things and watch for whales. And just by concentrating out there, your mind, you're not thinking about other things. You're just trying to find the next pot of whales that are going to breach. So, yeah, I think that there's lots of ways to unwind, and I think that's probably the, the whole point of it. I don't minimize how good meditation is for those of us that can do it. But for those of us that can't, you, you can't just give up. You have to find what is your alternative. Work your way up to it. And uh, a friend of mine is uh, in yoga and says, if you don't have time to relax or meditate for uh, 10 minutes, you need to do it for an hour. <laughs> in other words, make it a priority, like you said before. Absolutely. So let's, uh, before we head to another break, I just want to talk about um, vaccines. Um, you list several vaccines that people should really pay attention to. And as we get older, um, what are some of these vaccines? We've all had a lesson in a virulent virus, right? We all understand that COVID is a virulent virus. Well, there's other virulent viruses out there, and happily, we already have some vaccine for those invaders. So for everybody over the age of 50, it is advised to take the shingles vaccine. There's an, a new-ish, it's been out for three years, but a new-ish vaccine called Shingrix. And it's two shots, approximately eight weeks apart. And this reduces your risk of shingles by about 95%. In the general population, wow. women are more at risk for shingles than men. We don't really know why. And if you live into your 80s, 50% of Canadians will get shingles at one point or another. So everybody over the age of 50 should take the shingles vaccine. As we get older, our immune system is not as robust. We talked about that. So there are pneumonia shots to take. We absolutely should be taking a flu shot, particularly this year, because we don't want to get influenza or COVID. And although influenza vaccine is not going to protect you from COVID, bad influenza is going to land you up in the hospital and we need resources for COVID. So I think it's really important that everybody take influenza vaccine. And finally, 
both men and women may want to consider taking HPV vaccine. HPV or human papillomavirus decreases your risk for a virus that causes cancer. And depending on your situation, depending on your risk of exposure to a new partner, uh, you may be at risk for HPV. At the beginning of this talk, I, I mentioned that women live longer than men. We have women who maybe have been married and in a monogamous relationship for many years lose their spouse and end up in a second relationship or a third relationship. So I think it's important that everybody talk to their doctors about immunization. And I will say I'm very active in immunization. I do some work for Immunize Canada. And Canada is well recognized as a world leader in immunization. So I do want to alert the audience that's listening that when a COVID vaccine is available, we may not be the first country. Canada is very careful about vaccines. We will want to have all the bells and whistles in place in terms of the safety and the efficacy. But once something is on, the, is on and available in the Canadian market, um, I think it will be very helpful to everybody. And I would have confidence once Health Canada does allow a vaccine on the market because we have an excellent track record. Right. Well, that's that's good to know because I'm sure people, you know, vaccines are top of mind. They're all over the media right now. And every day people are trying to get updates on it. So it's nice to know that Canada will be doing its due diligence so that we know it's going to be safe when we do get to the point we can actually take it. So I'm sure that's reassuring for a lot of folks, too. We're going to head to another break, but I'm here with Dr. Vivian Brown. She's an author and international speaker on the topic of women's health. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall, and I'm here with Dr. Vivian Brown, who is a women's health expert. So let's talk about the main topic when it comes to aging and women's health, and that is menopause. Uh, Dr. Brown, can you explain what menopause is and how it impacts us? Yes, and I think the first thing, Mike, is we want to understand that menopause is not a disease. Menopause mm -hmm. is a transition Technically, what menopause means is that you've had 12 months of no periods, of no menses. But the reality is menopause really refers to the rest of your life once you've had that 12 months of no period. And in Canada, the common age is around 51 to 52. But some women go through menopause in their 40s. If they're younger than 40, it's called premature ovarian failure. And some women, even into their later 50s, 58, 59, can still be having cycles. But the most common age is around 50 to 51. And it refers to the end of your ovaries functioning, the end of your ovaries being able to produce an egg. And because of the hormonal shift, what happens is there's a gradual decrease of estrogen and progesterone. And what happens is that withdrawal of estrogen from your body, that lowering of the amount that's being produced, gives a variety of symptoms and they're not all the same in every person, in every woman. So for example, one woman may get terrible hot flashes, but no joint pain. And another woman may get terrible joint pain, but no hot flashes. So it's a variety of symptoms that doesn't affect everybody but eventually every woman stops having cycles, stops ovulating. And that's a, a natural transition as we get older. Right. And, and it can last different periods of time, depending on who the person is too, right? Absolutely. It depends on, for example, whether you smoke or not. 
people who smoke tend to go through menopause earlier than people who don't smoke. It matters when your mother went through menopause because some families have a much earlier menopause than others. And the symptoms of menopause may go away in a year or two or may last the rest of your life. It's very different in different people. There's treatments for, for menopause as well to help the transition, like hormone therapy. Are there any benefits or are there any risks with it? So, of, of course, this is a big topic, and I, and I do spend some time in my book on this, but we no longer call it hormone replacement therapy, or HRT. The newer language is NHT, menopausal hormone therapy, and that's because we're not replacing the levels that you had when you were in your 20s and 30s. What we're uh, doing you giving you a much smaller amount of hormone to basically decrease the symptoms that you're having. But not everybody needs hormone therapy. And what I say to my patients is about 80% of women will have symptoms of menopause, hot flashes, night sweats, joint pain, vaginal dryness, whatever, about 80%. Only about 25 to 30% will choose to take medication for those symptoms because not everybody is disabled by their symptoms. And I think that's a key point. If you have minor symptoms, you take off your sweater, you feel better, yeah, it's menopausal, and yes, it's, it's hot flashes, but no, you feel reasonably okay, then you don't necessarily need to be on medication. Whereas if you have your heart racing and your face turns red and you're dripping sweat and you feel like you could pass out and that happens 20 times a day, then yes, it's disabling, it's affecting your quality of life and you can consider hormone treatment. Okay, so are there any risk factors with being on prolonged uh, menopause hormone therapy? Well, we're very lucky. The North American Menopause Society has given us really great guidelines. And what the guidelines say is that, in general, you have to start within 10 years of your last period or under the age of 60. So if you had, let's say, a surgical menopause, surgery for some reason in your 40s and you didn't start anything, and now in your 60s you want to, it's too late. Mm. Um, but if you're starting at a time that's relatively close to your last period, and if you are overall a low-risk person, and that looks at things like blood pressure and heart disease and diabetes um, and breast cancer risk, if you're overall a low-risk person and you're starting at a young age between 50 and 60, it is a very low-risk option not no risk because the risk mm -hmm. is very minimally increased as you age, but it's very low risk. And I like to talk to women about breast cancer risk, for example. If yeah. you've never been on hormones, your risk is at a certain level. If you're on hormones for five years, it's that level plus four or that level plus six or that level plus eight. But for example, if you're 20 pounds overweight, your risk above baseline is 20 points higher. So there's right. many other things that can give us risk other than hormones, including not exercising, including being physically unfit or, and uh, putting on weight after menopause. So when we right. look at the whole issue of risk assessment, that's what we mean when we tell people it's a personalized decision. It's a personalized medicine. We're looking at you and your risk. And that's why you may not be on the same thing that your friend is 
or you may not be offered the same choices because everybody's family history and risk assessment is different. Right. And so you were talking about some of the lifestyle factors that can contribute to to cancer risk, but also uh, heart disease is very prevalent in women. I think a lot of people don't realize that as both men and women age, the risk of heart disease is very similar and they both go up dramatically. Absolutely. And, and I know that you're familiar with this, but one in three Canadians will die of heart and stroke. So although women worry about, about breast cancer, and of course there's other kinds of cancers that we worry about, the number one cause of death in Canada is heart and stroke. And women need to be very proactive. If your audience just comes away with one point from this whole interview, the most important thing you can do today is to quit smoking. Smoking is the number one risk factor for men and women when we look at the risk of heart disease. It's it's ironic. We had an oncologist on two weeks ago, and exactly the same message came out, and he also warned against vaping. We don't know what it's going to do yet, uh, but somehow that snuck its way into our society as well. Very easily, even with all the education we have around not smoking, I'm very happy to hear you say that. I lost my father to pancreatic cancer, and and he was a smoker, and uh, we know that that is a major risk factor for all sorts of cancers. The the other thing that women often say Um, is, you know, I don't really smoke. I'll have a couple of cigarettes at the end of the day or I'll I'll have a couple of cigarettes if I go out with my friends for a drink. And they don't consider themselves smokers. But even one to two cigarettes on a daily basis, even one cigarette a day, doubles your risk of heart disease. Whatever else you're doing, there's no safe level of smoking. Zero. Zero is what is safe. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you're saying that. There's some other modifiable risk factors outside of smoking that people should remove from their lifestyle as well. What are some of those? Well, we, we talked a little bit earlier about the importance of exercise, the importance of maintaining a good weight. We want to be really careful about alcohol consumption and diet, choosing low-fat foods, choosing healthy foods. You know, we want the antioxidants in green vegetables, for example, And I do believe that eating a healthy diet is more important than taking a whole lot of supplements. The supplements don't make up for a poor diet. So I think people can choose really good habits and and our children watch what we do. You know, we need to have good habits for ourselves, but also for the people around us. And so those are what we call modifiable risk factors. You can choose whether to exercise. You can choose whether to take your medication for blood pressure. You can choose whether to smoke or not. The things you're stuck with, the things that are non-modifiable, is your age. Obviously, we're we're happy to get older. The alternative is not what we want. Genetics, you can't choose what genetics you inherited. And there is some difference in sex in that women are protected by estrogen before menopause, and they gradually lose that protection after menopause. So women tend to get into heart disease a little bit later than men. Okay, we're going to keep on going, but we're going to jump to a quick break. I'm here with Dr. Vivian Brown. She's a women's health expert. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Vivian Brown, women's health expert. Dr. Brown, here's a topic that is well-known among older women, and that is osteoporosis. What is osteoporosis? So, Mike, it's a really important area because osteoporosis is really a weakening of the bone structure. And that's partly because estrogen was a support to bone structure. And after menopause, women no longer have estrogen and bones get weaker. 
The problem is, is that people often don't want to hear that their bones are weak. So for example, somebody slips on the ice, they put out their hand, they end up with a wrist fracture because all their weight went on their hand. And what I will say to them is that is a fragility fracture. You have underlying poor quality or poor strength of your bone. And what does the patient say to me? No, Dr. Brown, if you fell like I fell, you would have broken too. I slipped on the ice. Well, the definition of a fragility fracture is anything from your standing height, so falling just from your height, not down a flight of stairs, but falling from your standing height or the equivalent of one to three steps. That means falling out of bed, breaking your ankle, falling, uh, stepping off the curb, a minor injury leading to a fracture. And so what we know is with aging, women are more at risk for fracture, and 80% of fractures after the age of 50 are fragility fractures. Mm. And we know that bone density refers to the amount of bone you have, but a fracture tells you the quality of bone you have, and it's a combination of less bone in a smaller framed person and bone quality that leads to the diagnosis of osteoporosis and the risk of a fracture. Hmm. And, and, you know, hip fractures is something that can be ultimately fatal, but not necessarily because of a hip fracture. What's the link between falling and breaking your hip and, and other conditions? So hip fractures are very common. About one in eight women will have a fr hip fracture in her life, about 12%. Um, and, and just out of interest, you are more likely to fracture a bone after the age of 50 than you are to have a heart attack, stroke, breast cancer, all together, all added up together. A hip fracture or a significant vertebral fracture, a fracture of part of your back, is a very common event in postmenopausal women. And the problem is, is when you have a hip fracture, you end up being in bed, you end up not being independent, and this lying around and the surgery to correct the hip fracture puts you at risk for a variety of diseases like pneumonia, like blood clots, and blood clots can end up being a clot in the leg or can end up going to the chest, and it's called a pulmonary embolus. We know that about 23% of people, of women, in that first year after hip fracture will die. About 18% will end up in some kind of facility, but basically they can't go home and live independently. And about 40% will not walk properly for the rest of their life. So a hip fracture is truly a disaster in some people and something that we absolutely need to prevent. Pretty startling statistics there. We have talked about a lot of different things today. And, you know, I'm going to encourage everybody who gets a chance to take a look at your book and read it because it's got all this information plus hundreds of pages more of detail than anything we could cover in this in this chat. But Newfoundlanders in particular have some really specific challenges in Newfoundland and Labrador, including our weather, lack of access to healthy food for some communities. We have a pretty overburdened healthcare system, in particular with this backlog from the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's an overall lack of understanding uh, of, of health literacy really in our community. So where do we start? It's never too late. 
I think that's what I want to leave your audience with. It's never too late and it's never too early to think about healthy aging and healthy choices. The first thing that I would say to anybody is quit smoking and start walking. Start getting in your exercise on a daily basis. Quit smoking and so you're already making a a big choice and and a major impact on your health. And when we look at diet and what you're doing in terms of eating, cut down on your portions. If you do nothing else, if it's harder to get fresh fruit and vegetables, if it's more difficult to have home-cooked meals, whatever you're doing, start cutting down on portion size, start reading a little bit about how to make better choices. For example, there's a lot of research that says frozen vegetables give you as much nutrients as fresh vegetables, if fresh vegetables had to travel for three days to get there. So the first most important thing is the smoking The second most important thing is getting in regular exercise, being more active and starting to do that on a regular basis. I think that's, you know, in in simple terms, you start to feel better as you start to get into better habits. And it's not easy and it does take time, but make the commitment to yourself that you are the priority, that you do deserve this amount of time spent on yourself and that you... You want to make better choices because we all want to age. We all want to be, you know, in our in our golden years or however you describe it. But we want to age in a healthy way where we're strong and independent, not when we're sitting in an institution. And obviously, all of Canada has seen the long-term care facilities and just mm-hmm. how devastating that can be. So you want to stay independent. You just don't want to get old. You want to be older, but active, independent, and strong. I love that. It's not quantity of years all the time. It's the quality of those years as well. For sure. Great. Well, thank you so much for our conversation today, Dr. Brown. I learned a lot. I'm sure everybody listening did. Thanks for joining us. It's totally my pleasure, Mike, and I applaud you for putting the focus on health, Uh, not just women's health, but just in general, putting the focus on health. Once we lose our health, nothing else matters. We want to be healthy as a population because we are getting older. Our entire demographic is changing and getting older but let's keep ourselves independent. I'd like to thank Dr. Vivian Brown for taking the time out of her busy schedule to join us. What she shared with us is that it may not be as difficult as you think to live a healthy lifestyle as an aging woman. She encourages you to be conscious of the foods you eat, the exercise you need, get the rest you deserve, and reduce modifiable risk factors and bad habits that impact your long-term health. If you want to learn more about Dr. Brown's work, her book is available on Amazon, A Woman's Guide to Healthy Aging, Seven Essential Ways to Keep You Happy, Vital, and Strong. I've read it. It's a great read. Well, that's today's show, everybody. I hope you learned something new you can use in your day-to-day life. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you next week for another episode of the Health and Wellness Show on your VOCM.